The first passage we'll be reading together is Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 24. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these that you see, the days will come when there will be where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you'll gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The second reading is from the book of Second Peter, chapter 3. You'll find that right near the end of your Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today, especially for those who are new. We thank you for uh, letting them be a part of our midst. Uh, we do pray that we'll be able to express um, uh, the love of Christ as we gather uh, together as a church, that we'll be able to, to be a community that would sit under your word uh, humbly, uh, that your word uh, not just would teach us, but would uh, lead us towards life uh, and life to the full. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for the words of Jesus uh, that informs us about the reality of things in areas in which we are often confused by or perhaps want to ignore. And so in being informed, we pray that you'll prepare us uh, to be able to live in this age, uh, to be able to know what it means to keep trusting in Jesus uh, and doing the work of bearing witness to him uh, in this world. Uh, for this we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. All right, uh, end of the world. Uh, maybe you, uh, come, uh, you picture something like this in your mind. Uh, some people are really obsessed with the end of the world kind of stuff, isn't it? It's created many movies from Hollywood and other uh, genres, um, and uh, many books as well. Uh, whereas others, on the other end of the extreme, are very oblivious to the end of the world and avoid sort of giving any thought to it. Uh, we live life as if the world would never end. And for those who are obsessed with it, I suppose um, it makes sense, isn't it? We look around and everything comes to an end, everything kind of decays, uh, and they get obsessed with how right, the world will end. Uh, others want the world to end because this world that we live in, this life is full of such great misery, such great pain, uh, and we do look forward perhaps to this world ending and maybe a new one beginning. As for those who avoid it uh, and ignore it, uh, perhaps it's because we're just really happy with the lives that we have. Right, we, we wanted to keep on going because we are, we are enjoying life. Uh, and perhaps we know that if there is going to be an end, 
it would come with it uh, maybe a judgment. If there is really a God, then to have to stand before God and give an account of our lives and receive the judgment of God is something we want to avoid so we don't think about the end of the world. Now, our passage today deals with these kind of end times kind of questions. Uh, and and it's, it's kind of two extremes we're trying to avoid here. We're not trying to obsess over it, but we're certainly not to avoid it. Instead, we are to be properly informed about what the end looks like and how to be prepared for it and how to live in the reality of life in light of the end. So let me uh, just give us a bit of context, right? So if you're fairly new to us here, let me remind us about where we're up to as we come to Luke 21 in this passage. Now, just a few days back, if you were to re read back the, the previous passages, the previous chapters, you'll see that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, right? The city of his destiny. Uh, in just a matter of days, he will go to the cross to fulfill the mission for which he came into this world, right? To die for the sins of the world. Uh, and in these days, uh, in Jerusalem, his last days, he's been spending pretty much his entire waking moments uh, in the temple, uh, teaching and, and sorting stuff out, uh, as you read in the chapters before and after. Uh, reminder again that the temple was really the life, the heart right, of the people of God, uh, situated in the center of Jerusalem, uh, which is the capital city of, the, of Israel, God's people. Um, it was where God had chosen to put His glory in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctum of the temple, uh, as a sign that He was present with His people uh, and that there was a connection right, between God and, and people that was real. But as we've seen in the past few weeks, the temple is broken. Right? This is a great symbol of, of God and spirituality and presence is broken uh, because it is being led by spiritually blind leaders with their corrupt religion uh, who reject and seek to destroy the Christ that God sent. Right? The, the very Christ that they were supposed to be waiting for, they rejected when He came. And the leadership of Israel, in a way, symbolizes what Israel was like as a whole people of God. They were hard-hearted, spiritually blind people who always rejected God and His prophets and now His Son. Now, in our passage today, Jesus foretells the temple's destruction as part of the city's destruction, and it raises the question, the topic about the end times, right? the, the end of this world, the final judgment, the day of the Lord, uh, very familiar things that the Old Testament, the Jews would have known about. Now, as we get into verse 5, into the scene, uh, we see that some people, including Jesus' disciples, uh, who have been following Him around at this point in time, uh, they were marveling at the temple that was standing in front of them. Now, this is around AD 30-something, maybe 33 to 35, roughly. Uh, and the temple that stood in this time of where Jesus was alive was the third version of the temple. Uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, the first version of the temple was built by King Solomon, probably about a thousand years before the great temple of Solomon, uh, which was destroyed uh, by the Babylonian Empire in, AD, uh, in BC 587. Right? So uh, under the judgment hand of God, the people of uh, Israel and Judah had rejected God, and so the Babylonian Empire came under the judgment hand of God and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Version 1, gone. About 100 plus years later, uh, under the ministry of Ezra, uh, the second temple was rebuilt right, by the exiles that came back to Jerusalem. But it was a tiny little temple, it was a pale reflection of the original, and the forefathers who had seen the original temple cried because it was so pathetic and so tiny. A few hundred years later, in 20 BC, King Herod, the puppet Jewish king under the Roman Empire, decided to have a huge, massive reconstruction of this pitiful temple. And he built something awesome. 
So I'm not sure if you knew this, but uh, the temple of Solomon on the left was glorious, right? It was uh, set by God, but the temple that Herod built was almost three times bigger, right? It's massive. Uh, it was built with bigger, more impressive stones, and it was decked out by even more precious materials, and the offerings, the sacrifices that were brought uh, adorned the place, right? Full of gold and silver and bronze and all kinds of precious materials. Uh, some historians say that if had it still stood today, it would have been one of the seven wonders or well, the eighth wonder right, of the world. It was that impressive. So here, in AD 30-something, right, when Jesus and his disciples stood in front of the temple, it was about 50 years into the temple reconstruction. It was finished around AD 60-something. So it was well on its way to being finished. It was impressive. It was glorious. It was to be marveled at. But then comes Jesus' words which is like a huge bucket of cold water poured over their nationalistic enthusiasm, right? A knife right into their heart of their national Jewish pride of place, this temple that stood for God's presence, right, among God's people, the Israelites. But Jesus says, verse 6, as for these things that you see, this temple, these stones, these, these offerings, sacrifices, that the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It will all come crashing down one day. Right? It's not going to stand. It's going to be destroyed. And we know why, if we've been following along the last few chapters. Because this temple, it looks physically beautiful on the outside, but inside, spiritually, what it was supposed to be, it was dead. It was corrupt. It was broken. Corrupt religion, spiritual blindness, hard-hearted rejection of God. So the outside looks beautiful, but the inside was utterly dead. And so Jesus says, a time will come when the temple will be destroyed. Now, I think it's hard for us uh, in, 20, in our living in 2022 to fully appreciate what Jesus is saying right, to the disciples at this very moment. Uh, for the disciples who were Jews, they understood the bigger, the fuller implications of what Jesus is saying because they know their history. They know their Old Testament scriptures. They know the prophecies. They know what it meant when the first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed. They know that with it came the destruction of the city as part of the judgment hand of God. And so this prophecy, this prediction, this foretelling that this temple will be destroyed immediately picked into their minds that it's a symbol of something bigger. It is not just a single discrete event. If the temple goes, it means the city is going to go. It means that God's judgment is falling. Which is why when the disciples ask the questions of Jesus, they ask about these things, right? Plural, not singular, right? These things. Because they know know it's made up of bigger events that's going to happen. To the disciples' minds, hearing of the temple's destruction triggers them to think about the end, right? The day of the Lord, the final judgment. And so understandably, they ask, when will these things happen? What signs should we look for to indicate that the end is going to come? Now, we're going to look at Jesus' answer in two parts, right? This week, up to verse 24, uh, dealing with the temple and the city's fall. And then we're going to look next week from verse 25 onwards to see the final end when the Son of Man, Jesus, comes back. And what we're going to see over these two weeks is two things. The first is that the end will not all come at once. Uh, The end will not come all at once, I should say. Right, but spread out over a period of time. And it seems a long period of time. The second thing we'll see is that the destruction of the temple 
and the city of Jerusalem assures us is the guarantee of the final judgment that is to come. If the first sign has happened, then be sure that the final sign, the actual coming, will happen. Anyway, Jesus doesn't actually begin by telling the disciples the answer to their questions, right? What are the signs and when? He starts off by telling him what not to look for, or in fact, what to look for that aren't signs. Does that make sense? What to look for that are not signs of the end. It's almost as if Jesus knew that his disciples then and the disciples in generations to follow will get obsessed right, with the when question and the what signs question. And so Jesus makes it clear, what are the signs that are not signs of the end? In fact, he's going to tell them what is to be the normal, to-be-expected reality of simply being a Christian, right, living in this broken world. That's what they are. That's what the signs are. So let's get into it, right? The first of the three not signs. The first not sign that Jesus talks about are false Christs and pretend prophets. False Christs and pretend prophets. Jesus warns that after him will come a series of people who will claim to be the Messiah sent from God. They will claim to have special knowledge about the timings and the hows of, of when the end will come. As we'll see next week, it will be impossible uh, to miss when Jesus comes, when the Christ comes. It will be impossible right, to miss. You won't need to have to assess it. Are they, are they not? It will be clear. And so Jesus says, don't be deceived. Right? Don't be deceived by false Christ and false prophecies about the end. Now, of course, uh, in my research this week, I thought, oh, I'll be quickly Google search, right? False Christs and Jesuses. And there's a frightening, frightening, frighteningly large number of people who have claimed to be Jesus or the Christ. So Wikipedia is the source of uh, all of your assignments, I'm sure. Uh, here we go, right? I won't let you read through all that. But basically, page one, it starts from 18th century because records before that are a bit sketchy. So they start from 18th century. They list out people who claim to be Jesus Christ, 19th century, and then down 20th century, if I click it works. Nope, not working for me. Okay, here we go. 20th century, long list there, and it keeps going. And then we're in 21st century at the bottom there, long list. Right, of people who've claimed to be Jesus or the Christ. And I'm sure that's not all everyone, right? That's just the ones that Wikipedia has managed to capture. Now, one recent example uh, that a uh, few Singaporeans and myself had uh, personal interactions with uh, was dealing with the Korean Christ. Anyone know about the Korean Christ? Uh, his name is An Sang Hong right, of the World Mission Society of God. Never mind that uh, the Christ was meant to be so, this glorious messianic figure Right, who will bring in the end of the world and the eternal kingdom, he died right, in 1985, age 67. And yet there are still today, according to Wikipedia, 3.3 million followers still following An San Hong uh, as the, Jesus, uh, the Korean Jesus Christ. Now, it's not just uh, believer, uh, unbelievers right, who might be taken in by this. It's, it's, it's actually worrying that it's actually Christians uh, who latch on to people who claim to have special access to God Right, who come with, who have a special news, a special message from God. Perhaps they say you know, that they've died and gone into heaven itself, or they've died and gone to hell, or they receive a special message from the Holy Spirit of God, right, giving them information about when the world will come to an end. And then they reported these amazing discoveries, and people believe them. But Jesus has said it so clearly, right? Don't believe them. Don't listen to them. Don't be fooled by them. 
Right, another quick search about you know, end of time prophecies, another long, massive list of people who claim to know when the world will come to an end and, and how. And all these failures right, are recorded for us in history, and it, it, it makes a mockery right, of this whole prophesying kind of game. One famous uh, you know, Christian uh, prophet is Harold Camping. Maybe you might have known him, heard his name. He's getting a bit old now. He made 12 prophecies, right? Beginning in uh, 1994 with his book, 1994, question mark, right? His first prophecy, the end of the world. And you would think that after the first failed prophecy and then the second one, you think he had a bad day. He had two bad days. But then by the third one, you'd think you'd ignore him, wouldn't you? But then by his 12th prophecy, he predicted, um, you know, great fanfare, people placarding uh, Times Square, New York, uh, Judgment Day falling May 21st, 2011. 11 years ago, right? His final failed prophecy. Uh, people believing him rather than believing the words of Jesus. When Jesus makes it really clear, no one knows, not even him, when's the day or the hour uh, that he will return. And so Jesus says, don't be deceived. Right? When he does come, you can't miss it. Right? Don't have to look looking for, for, for false Christs uh, and, 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 and prophetic words from special places. It'll be clear. The second not sign <clears throat> is all of the chaos and the unrest that is in this world. And so as we read on, Jesus talks about, you know, you'll hear about wars and about civil unrest. You'll hear about uh, and you'll experience all sorts of natural disasters, earthquakes and famines, pestilences and pandemics like we're going through right now. You will uh, experience terrors and cosmic signs. And for the Jews, cosmic signs were probably hailstones or lightning storms or perhaps shooting stars, right? Back in those days, they interpreted shooting stars as some kind of cosmic sign uh, that had spiritual significance. Now, as you scan through you know, all those lists of uh, prophecies of the end times, I think I've noticed that the description of why they came up is because um, there, are, there is the presence and the escalation of wars and, and strife in our world. Uh, usually these prophecies come up in uh, times of big economic downturn or, or the threat of a yet another comet right, on its pathway to destroying uh, Earth and other kind of global upheavals like this. It's easy to see why we might respond to the chaos and the upheavals and the difficulties of life uh, by wanting to have more certainty about when the end comes and be more open right, to all these false Christs and false prophets and start living in strange ways and being very certain when Jesus says that we can never be certain because he hasn't told us. These aren't signs of the end of the world. They are simply expressions of living in a sin-broken world. Chaos and strife and tumult and pain. The world has been in chaos for a very long time past. It's in chaos now and it will be till when Jesus returns. And so Jesus says what's most important for us as his followers is to be realistic, to be realistic about the world that we live in, uh, to not be terrified, to not be afraid, and not to fall into, into falsehood, but to stay faithful and trusting in his words and to live for him. Now, before even all these false prophets and world in turmoil kind of stuff, there is something that happens even before all this. It comes before even all this. There's even less of a sign of the end, right? Because it comes before, right? <clears throat> and that's persecution. Have a look at verse 12. 
Before, uh, but before all this, which is the false Christ's prophecies and the world and chaos, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, it's very important that we remember always right, the audience, right? Firstly, Jesus is speaking uh, to the disciples uh, that are there and then with him, thank you, uh, in AD 30-something, right? So in terms of timing, he's actually speaking to the disciples who are standing right in front of him. Uh, the timing of these events that Jesus speaks of applies to them first and foremost. And of course, we don't have to think about whether we can extrapolate it to us as disciples living now, right? But here in this passage, Jesus is telling his disciples there and then about what's going to happen in the very near future. In fact, in a matter of days, uh, this will all come true. Uh, before the false Christs, before the false prophecies, before the world gets even more chaotic, the persecution is going to hit them soon, and it's going to hit them hard. Within days, this will start to be fulfilled. As we discover, right, Jesus will be arrested and the disciples will be put under pressure. And then Jesus will die and raise again and then ascend back into heaven and it will read in the book of Acts all the persecution that they faced. They were going to face the persecution from all levels of society, whether it's from the fellow Jewish man or from the Jewish leadership or from the Gentile, the Roman rulers and empire. Wherever they go, Jesus said that the early disciples will face persecution, even from their family and their friends and their colleagues. Uh, Jesus makes it really stark, isn't he? He tells them, you'll be hated, you'll be reviled, uh, you'll be arrested, you'll be jailed, you'll be beaten, and some of you will even be martyred right, for being my disciple. And if you know anything about the original disciples, pretty much all of them didn't die a natural death. They were martyred for their witness to Jesus. And so Jesus says that persecution isn't a sign that the end is near. It is simply a sign of being a committed follower of Jesus. That's a bit of a sobering thing, isn't it, to hear? Can you imagine being the original disciples hearing this? And I suppose it's not much easier to hear today, is it? But with this sobering reality comes Jesus' greatly comforting and assuring words. And there's a few great words of comfort and assurance that we'll read on. Being brought before all sorts of authorities and rulers gives them all sorts of access to places because of persecution. Right? You'll give them opportunities to preach the gospel, to witness to Jesus everywhere. As we read on into Acts 4, by the way, Acts is like Luke version 2, right? Luke wrote Luke's gospel and then he wrote Acts. He goes on to record, right, for us exactly this happening. So the, uh, the apostles, Peter and John, in Acts 4, they were there in the marketplace preaching to the crowds, and we were told that about 5,000 came to Christ on that day. But then they were arrested and they were hauled before the Jewish leadership. And then in the Jewish uh, uh, courts of war uh, and the place of worship, they were then able to witness again, right, to the high priests and to, uh, to the uh, scribes and the elders. And then, of course, if you read on, chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, right, out in a uh, 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 Gentile world, he's, one day, he's preaching to the crowds and he's arrested and he's brought to the synagogues of the Syrians and the, the Cilicians and, and all these other Gentile rulers and he's there able to preach the gospel before he is killed. And as we know, uh, the Apostle Paul dominates the second half of the book of Acts. And for him, 
whether it was in Jerusalem or in the wider Judea region or out further into Turkey and then into Greece and finally into Rome, the capital city of Italy, the center of the Roman Empire, the persecution that drives Paul further and further out brings him into homes of common folk. It brings him into prisons with criminals. It brings him into the very courts and palaces of dignitaries and rulers, even before the great Caesar himself. As Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This will be an opportunity for the gospel that brings salvation to go out to the world. That's a great assurance. But then he adds to that further words of comfort. You don't have to meditate. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to stress out. You don't have to memorize some great speech right, before you meet all these kind of uh, persecutions. He says in verse 15, I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I will give you a mouth of wi- and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, this was especially true, isn't it, for the original disciples who at this point had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Right? To put it in a very Singaporean way, they were like just blur kings right, at this point of history. They had no idea, really, uh, who Jesus really was. They were following him. They were hearing stuff, but they weren't really getting it. Uh, and as we'll see, they weren't really prepared when Jesus was arrested and killed. Uh, they weren't expecting that he would rise from the dead. And certainly they were very surprised still at this point in time. They didn't have the New Testament like we do to be able to read and study and learn and to testify to Jesus from. These disciples especially needed Jesus' assurance because in a matter of days, things are going to get really hard. They needed to wait for the Holy Spirit to give them a mouth and a wisdom. And because Jesus fulfills His promise that they get the Holy Spirit, they were then able, as we see in the, gospel, in the book of Acts, to bear witness to Jesus with Holy Spirit-driven words right, of wisdom that came from God that could not be refuted. It wasn't that it could not be opposed, but what they said was true. It was really God's word. It was really the gospel that was not able to be refuted. And finally, when it comes to persecution, then Jesus gives them one final word of assurance and encouragement in verses 17 to 19. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Such a hard word, isn't it? You will be hated and persecuted but you will not perish. You will not perish. Now, clearly this doesn't mean that they won't physically die. Because not only did the disciples right there and then not just physically die a natural death, almost all of them died an unnatural death as a result of persecution. So what Jesus is saying here, as we, as we understand what, Jesus, what life Jesus promises, is the, is the promise of eternal life, of, 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 of life with Jesus. Even though the, the hate and the persecution will result in physical and emotional harm, perhaps even death, no true harm will come to them, is what Jesus is promising. In the words of Jesus, just right here, he says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Right? And obviously here is the life that you gain, the eternal life with Jesus. In such a way that the apostles, when they write scripture, would say that physical death for believers is just like going to sleep. It's as painful as going to sleep because no true harm will come to you because you will wake up to eternal life with our Lord Jesus. Nothing in this life can take that 
wonderful promise and reality away from us. Now, these words, I, I assumed, would have been greatly comforting and assuring for the disciples, not just in that very moment they heard it, but as they were experienced the events that would unfold in the following days and weeks and months and years of their lives. And I think it's a word of comfort for all the disciples all the way down through the generations because we live in the same world, don't we? Now, we've covered the three not signs. And finally, Jesus then deals with what is the sign, right? When is the end coming? When will the, this temple be destroyed? That's the original question, right? When and what signs can we, can we tell that uh, this temple will be destroyed? And the answer is in verse 20, right? Have a look at verse 20. The answer is that when, G, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, right? when Jerusalem comes under the attack, under attack, the city and the temple in the center of that city will both fall. And as you read on from verse 20 to 24, it will be a time of great trauma and a time of great distress. It will be so bad that the right thing to do is to run, right, as fast as you can, as far as you can, right, to the hills. Get away from the danger, from the trauma and the tragedy that's going to happening, that's going to happen to Jerusalem. And he mentions the pitiful state of those who, who are encumbered. Maybe they're pregnant, they have young children, and they can't run as fast. Right, pity them, he says. And then we realize that this destruction that comes upon Jerusalem is a result of two things, isn't it? On the one hand, it is clearly the judgment hand of God that is uh, falling down against the wickedness and the faithlessness of Israel, supposedly God's chosen people. But on the other hand, we see that it is the result of the Gentiles, the Romans warmongering, right, their sword falling down uh, to snuff out the revolt right, that uh, the Jews were putting up right, in this time of history. Now, it's highly likely that this book, Luke, was written in the early 60s, around the 60s, AD 60. Um, and in the mid-60s, uh, if you know anything about the Jewish kind of history, uh, and this is not just by Christians, right? This is Jewish historians and, Rome, and, and, and secular historians. Uh, they wrote about how in this period of time, there were these false Christs, these uh, Messianic zealots right, who rose up in Jerusalem, who were creating a real stir among the Jewish people, uh, to get them to revolt right, against the Roman Empire. Uh, it, it started what we call the Jewish-Roman War, uh, otherwise known as the, the Great Jewish Revolt. It officially began in AD 66, and it ended uh, seven, eight years later in AD 73. And at the height of this Jewish-Roman War, in AD 70, the walls of Jerusalem was breached, the city was razed, and the temple was destroyed. It's really quite amazing when you think about it. In the uh, mid-30s, Jesus stood before this glorious temple and predicted that all these things uh, would happen. That persecution would come to his disciples, that there will be false Christs, and that there will be war and tumult, and then the temple will fall as a result of the city falling. It will all come to pass right, within decades of Jesus speaking, within years of this book being written. So, right, the first of these things have happened. So is it the end, right? Um, and hear what Jesus says in verse 24. Verse 24. Um, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, right? The fall of Jerusalem and the temple. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Right, so the, this seems to be that the, the, uh, the, the fall of Jerusalem kicks off a period of time that will end until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
Now, the Gentiles are basically non-Jews, so the, the entire world. Uh, when the, 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 the city of Jerusalem fell, right, it was a uh, historic one-time event. But Jesus speaks of it here as a beginning, isn't it, of a judgment process that doesn't finish until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Can you see that, right? The fall of Jerusalem begins a new phase in God's end-of-the-world plans, a time where the Jews are no longer front and center in God's purposes and plans, like it was in the Old Testament, where now it will be the time of the Gentiles, where they will be prominent. They will be front and center. Now, it's not that Israel is no longer important to God and that he's written off this whole city and this whole uh, nation, but it's now the time for the Gentiles to have the prominent place in God's purposes. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what is it this time of the Gentiles, and, and I guess the first clear thing is that it's going to be that their time to rule and have dominion over the world. But as we read what Jesus has been doing, and as we understand the Old Testament, we realize that the time of the Gentiles is also the time when the gospel right, will go out to the world, to the nations. The Lord God of uh, heaven and earth had chosen Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth, remember, Genesis 12, and they said that I will bless you and your family, Israel, but through you the blessings will come to the world. In God's timetable of salvation, Israel was like the blueprint, but the reality was that God was going to reach the entire world. This is what's happening. Jesus himself commanded that the gospel had to be proclaimed to all nations. In his great commission, Matthew 28, he says, uh, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so do what? Go and make disciples of all nations. This is a time of the Gentiles. This is a time that we live in right now. All right, let me just bring a, few, a couple of points of implications together as we finish, all right? Uh, let's land it to us today. I want you to, before we land today, I want you to imagine first. I think it's good sometimes to imagine putting yourself in the shoes of the original readers to get the first impact and then to fast forward to where we are 2,000 years later uh, to see what similarities or differences kind of play out. Okay? So imagine being an original reader of Luke's Gospel somewhere in the early 60s. Not 1960s, right? Further than that, 0060. Okay? Uh, you're a follower of this faith uh, called Christianity that's been around. It's quite young but it's long enough, 30 plus years, that you're starting to question when, right, is the end coming? Because I've read my Old Testament now, and I've been taught that when Christ comes, he will bring in the final judgment, the end of the world, and he'll bring me, right, into heaven, the new creation. Um, life is pretty bad. If you know anything about being a Christian back in that days, uh, persecution, whether you're in Jerusalem, in Judea, uh, further afield, the Roman Empire wasn't kind. Right, to Christians who stood out. And perhaps you lived in Jerusalem at this time, and the great glorious temple of Herod has just been finished. And you walk past it every day, and you marvel at the humongous stones and the opulent uh, uh, furnishings right, of this temple. Um, and, 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 or, or maybe you live in the surrounding regions, and you know about the eighth wonder of the world, right, that is just a kilometer or 100 kilometers away, and, and one that you hope to visit, right, the symbol of national Jewish pride, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the background, the foundation of your Christian faith. And then you hear Luke's gospel being read out for the first time because it's just been written. Uh, and you hear it being read out to you in the temple. Maybe you're in Jerusalem or you're in a synagogue somewhere in Ephesus or, or Galatia. And you're, reading here, you're hearing it read out in your home church. And you hear these words of Jesus. 
And you hear it being read out, right? Maybe week after week or year after year, as long as you, read, you hear Luke being read out. And, and, and you start to experience these truths coming to pass. Because as the 60s rolls on, false messiahs raise up, beginning the Jewish revolt, the rise of false Christs, the threat of war and, 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 and chaos and political military unrest escalates. And then one day, you find yourself as a, as a Jew in Jerusalem running for your life because the walls of your city has tumbled and the, and the, the temple is being destroyed by the Roman Empire, right? Putting down its heavy hand of judgment against this revolting Jewish people. Imagine experiencing Jesus' predictions being fulfilled in your lifetime. Yes, life will still be very hard, Yes, the world is still in turmoil. And yes, the persecution doesn't actually stop. But wouldn't you feel assured that Jesus is in control? Wouldn't you feel assured day by day, year by year, as you remember the words of Jesus and you rejected the words of the false Christ, wouldn't you be assured, hey, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He really is someone I can trust. What he says really is happening you're amazed and you're assured to see that Jesus really is someone who is your king that you can follow. Now, for us who live almost 2,000 years later, we are to be similarly informed and prepared to face the reality of life as Christians before the end comes. Now, when, when, uh, when the Jerusalem and the temple fell, uh, we can see clearly right, that the first sign of the end has happened and God's end-time plans have been put into motion. Right, next week, we'll look at when Jesus actually comes back and we have to figure out, is there anything else that's going to happen in between? But for now, it's clear. God's end time plans have been put into motion. So let's make sure that we, we don't live as if that's not true. Or put it more positively, let us make sure that we live as if it were true, that this world, God's final judgment, will come one day. Don't be oblivious to it or ignore it. Live as if the end will never come. And certainly don't be at the other extreme either, to wrongly obsess uh, over all of the whens and the hows uh, that will happen. Now, there are some clear ways then I think we can apply this Word of God to us today. Uh, let me go through some of these quickly and let me expand on one, one point. Firstly, let's not be deceived by all these false Christs and false messiahs and all these special messengers. Jesus made it clear, right? There, there is none of those. Uh, he has told us what we need to know. So let's just believe what he says and not believe anybody else's, right? All these false prophets and false predictions of the end of the world. Second thing is, don't be alarmed and don't be terrified by the chaos that is happening in our world. And there is a lot of chaos, isn't there? Whether it's out there in the, in the wider geopolitical sphere or whether it is uh, natural disasters and pandemic. Of course, the pandemic. Right? We're living in that right now. Or whether it's in other more personal and internal turmoil. Let us not be terrified by living in this broken world. And certainly let us not be surprised by persecution that continues to be the reality for all who follow Jesus. Instead, let us see persecution as an opportunity uh, to share the gospel. That's one of the things that Jesus assures, isn't it? It opens doors, persecution, that weren't there sometimes. Now, I think we all prefer, uh, at least comfortable, for comfort levels-wise anyway, people who are apathetic, Right? You know, who, who don't really want to hear uh, and who, really, you know, who never really talk to us or raise anything to do with Christianity or the Bible or Jesus. It is much harder to face the combative, the angry, 
the very strong opposition family member or friend or colleague or social media, for instance. But Jesus says that sometimes, oftentimes, it is the combative oppositional person that is more open to having a discussion. Uh, they are more open, uh, even though they may question and they may mock and they may shout you down, at least there is a conversation to be had. Now, it will never, be, it will never feel good. If we went evangelism based on our comfort levels, then of course, this will never feel good. And, and ideally, we'd love somewhere in between, right? Someone who is not completely apathetic and doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to talk, uh, versus someone who's so angry. We'd love for it to be just right, right? Goldilocks, right? But the reality is, out of the two extremes, which is better? I think this one is better, isn't it? But we have to be courageous. We'll have to, to, to be able to withstand right, that kind of force of uh, upsetness. Uh, perhaps they're, they're, they're not believing in a God and in a Jesus that is actually not true. That there, there's a place for us to be able to clarify and explain and persuade with love and wisdom and humility and gentleness what the true gospel is all about. And in those moments, we need to not be anxious, but to trust in what Jesus promised to his disciples that we need not be anxious about what to say because in a very real way, we have the Holy Spirit who will guide us, who will give us a mouth and a wisdom to speak in those moments. Now, it's, it's well within the, the Spirit of God's capability right, to give us words to speak that we've never learned. Right? Suddenly now, I've never learned anything, I've never read anything about it, suddenly I speak amazing truths. I mean, God can do that through me. But the normal way the Holy Spirit works is for us to read and study His Word, right? The Word of God, the words of Jesus, and the promise is that the Holy Spirit will take the Word that we've learned and, and it helps us to express it in a wise, timely, and gracious way. And so, our responsibility is to study Scriptures, to study the words of the apostles who were given the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, for us to know it well, but then to not rely on our own strength, but to rely on the Spirit to help us in those moments to testify to Jesus. And in those moments where you feel like you've done a pretty bad job or maybe that you feel like you've failed, trust that the Spirit hasn't failed, that whatever weak words or whatever bad situation has arisen, the Holy Spirit can work in and through you and certainly in those people that you speak with. So let us have courage to open our mouths to speak, to bring up Jesus in our conversations. Now, if you've just arrived in Brisbane in the last couple of days, maybe you've seen City Point Christian College like blazing around the news on Facebook. Uh, and if not, you'll probably hear about it, right? It is dangerous to be a Christian this week in Brisbane, especially. And I've gone out to the whole of Australia. Right? Commentators from all the states weighing in now. I'm not going to talk about the specific issues of the City Point Christian College and what they did. But all I can say is that it's raised the temperature yet again. That persecution will likely follow that just by being a Christian, you will probably be shouted down right, for various beliefs. In this kind of climate, I want to encourage us to continue to, to be comforted by the Word of God and to continue to persevere in sharing and testifying to Jesus even in the midst of persecution. You see, the end will come. Now is the time for the gospel to go out to the world. So let us neither obsess about the end and obsess about the wrong things, nor ignore the reality of its coming. Instead, let us be informed, let us be prepared, and let us be courageous Christians uh, who will endure in faith 
and in witness. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And even though it sounds like, you know, such hard words of, uh, of uh, difficult times and persecution and the end of the world and judgment, uh, we thank you that it's because of your love that you reveal these truths to us, that you prepare us, that you inform us and prepare us for what is to come, that you help us to understand reality in the, in the world that we live in, and especially to, to understand reality in light of the end where your judgment will fall. And so we pray, Father, that you'll help us. Uh, help us not to be deceived by false Christs and prophets that will come along, people who claim to have special truths that predicts the end and cause us to live in such weird ways that your word never calls for. Help us not to be terrified by the chaos that's happening around the world and in our lives. And help us not to be surprised by persecution. But instead, help us to be comforted to see that it may actually give us opportunities to share the gospel of life and salvation to the world. Help us to, to be assured of knowing your Spirit's presence that helps us to speak. Help us to know that those who endure uh, will never suffer in any real and long-lasting way. So please give us your peace as we continue to put our trust in Jesus, as we continue to preach his gospel to the world. For this we pray in his name. Amen.